Our reading this morning is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. This is on page 1035 in the Church Bibles. The Faith of the Centurion. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turned to the crowd following him. He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Good morning. Um, those of you who don't know me very well, my name's John. Um, I've been coming to the church uh, for a little while now, um, and uh, very, very happy to be here, um, and delighted to be speaking this morning. Um, it's such a fantastic passage, and um, there's so much in it 
because both stories have got so much to tell us, I think. Um, so uh, we're not going to be able to do everything this morning, but there are certain things I'd really, really like to highlight. Um, I was walking down this morning with uh, my two children, uh, walking through the park just here, um, and uh, Ben, my son, who's, who's here, decided to stay. Um, he, he asked me what I was doing this morning in church, and I said that I was um, going to be sharing the word. And he said, great. He said, I love it when you're the center of attention. <laughs> So I very piously said, well, actually, Ben, I think you'll find that Jesus will be center of attention this morning. Um, and, um, and it's quite a useful uh, intro. Thanks, Ben. Um, and, and actually, it helps with this as well, because I think it's tempting um, when you do this passage to look at the centurion um, and to say something about him. And there's lots to say about him. And, and, and he's a fantastic uh, character for lots of reasons. Um, and it's understandable why Luke might focus on the centurion, because he's a Gentile. And obviously Luke's account um, is seeking to emphasize the place um, of Gentiles, non-Jews, in God's plan. But I, I couldn't get away um, from just focusing on Jesus this morning, um, which is, I guess, what you'd hope me to, uh, to do. And actually, I was much more drawn to the second story in my preparation, uh, the raising of the widow's son. So I will be talking about the centurion story, but really, it's the raising of the widow's son that really moved me um, in my preparation. Um, and uh, the title of the talk um, is, is taken a little bit uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus talks about himself um, and he talks about that they're talking about um, who he might be, and, he, and they're talking about Jonah, and they're talking about Solomon, and he says something greater than Jonah um, is, is coming, something greater than Solomon is coming. And, and so the, the title this morning is Something Greater This Way Comes. This passage, I believe, is about how Jesus is greater than anything that's ever come before. And I think to really, really understand this passage, I think we have to read it backwards and forwards. I don't think we can just take it as an isolated incident. We have to see it as part of the wider story about who Jesus is. And that's what I want to do this morning. So we're going to go on a little bit of a journey, I hope that's okay, through the Bible and using this resurrection moment as our kind of center point. And we're going to go backwards and forwards. So if you have your Bibles with you, you might enjoy, uh, those of you who like that kind of thing, um, chasing around with me. I've, I've looked up some page references so I can help you. If you don't want to do that, that's fine as well. Um, but I'm sure that some of you like to do that. And for me, it's, so in this first half, and essentially in, in the whole gospel, the central question is, who is Jesus? Who is he? What's his identity? And actually, we see that in Luke, don't we? Later, he asks the disciples, who do the crowds say I am? Do you remember that? He says that in Luke 9, 18. Um, and actually, just after this bit as well, in verse 19, what people say to them is, are you the one who is to come? It's the central question of the Gospels. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? And do we have a full understanding of who he is? And what I love about Jesus in the Gospels is the way that he progressively reveals himself. He progressively reveals himself. And you'll remember earlier in Luke, he actually asks people not to tell people about the things that they've seen and done. Because he knows that people are not yet ready for the full truth of who he is. He knows that they haven't got the capacity yet to fully understand who he really is. That there's such depth to his identity, that people need to be taught a piece at a time. Now, I happen to be a school teacher, and I know that that's true about all of us. It's called cognitive overload. We can only cope with so much at once, and any good teacher will break a lesson into pieces over time. 
Because people can't cope with it all, all at once. It's too much. And that Jesus is the best teacher. And he reveals himself progressively all the way through the Gospels. And I, I want you to notice a few things about the progression of the miracles that we've seen so far since the beginning of Luke. And how we get to this point. So just, just trust me with this. This is what happens, okay? The first thing that he does is he drives out impure spirits. That's the first set of miracles, all right? Which for me is the, kind of, the beginning of his, his miraculous ministry. And then he moves on to healing the sick, we're told. And then he heals somebody who's paralyzed. Can you see how the miracles are getting greater intensity? Okay? Sick and then paralyzed, all right? And then we have the centurion story where he heals someone who's close to death, we're told, so mortally sick, but he heals from distance. Do you see how that's even more? Progressively revealing his authority in an escalating set of miracles. Healing at distance now, somebody who's almost dead. And then we have a resurrection, somebody who's recently died. So do you see even in the miracles that we get in Luke's gospel up to this point that Jesus is ramping up the level of his miraculous deeds, as he's revealing the extent of his authority on earth, piece by piece, in an order that people can cope with. If he went straight in with raising the dead, I think he wouldn't be able to reveal the depth in quite the same way of who he really is. So this story for me is a really, really important one, in, the, in that Jesus is saying something new about himself that we haven't seen yet in this gospel. This raising of the dead is very, very important. And what's interesting about this is that this account is unique to Luke. It's quite fun to say that. It's unique to Luke. It's only Luke's gospel has the raising of the widow's son. It's the only of the four gospels that has this particular incident. They all have the centurion story, but not the raising of the widow. And I like to think that Luke has included this story for a very, very particular reason, which I'd like to explore with you. Is that okay? So that's where we're heading. So we're going to read this story backwards. Okay, we're going to find out where it's from, because Luke tells it in a particular way, this raising of the widow's son, which actually forms a really, really strong connection with something that's happened in the Bible before, all right? And for that, we're going to go back to 1 Kings, okay? 1 Kings 17. In your Bibles, it's page 358. 1 Kings 17. You don't have to turn with me, but it's fun, so why not? 1 Kings 17 verse 19. So this is a story about Elijah, who also raises a widow's son. Okay, it's a mirror miracle. And I believe it's a connection that isn't lost on the people who are there, and certainly not lost on Luke. So let's just have a look at it. So 1 Kings 17, verse 19. So he's talking to, a, we'll go, um, no, we'll go from verse 17. So 17, 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. And this is a house where Elijah is staying. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? So the woman that he's staying with believes that, that Elijah somehow is, the, is the, the cause of the death. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. 
The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Do you see the parallel? It's clear, isn't it? It's clear. Raising of a widow's son and that image of returning the son back to her. Because I'm sure you understand that for a widow who, who clearly has lost a husband, to lose your only son, that is complete catastrophe for this person in this society. You know, there's no benefits, there's no social welfare, there's no means by which this woman would be able to live now. She would be completely isolated. And it's the same in Elijah's day as well. So it's a particularly important time for Elijah and then later for Jesus to restore the son back to the widow. It's a particularly compassionate thing. And I just believe that Luke and the people around understand the connection. Because if you look at the way that people react, and back in the Luke story now, so back in Luke 7, what happens? He raises, raises the son, verse 15, and then verse 16 it says, they were all filled with awe and praised God. And then what do they say? A great prophet has appeared among us, a great prophet. They understand that this miracle puts Jesus in the same league as Elijah. Does everyone see that? They get that. This is a particularly, raising the dead is the premier league of miracles, and it puts you in the same kind of stratosphere as somebody like Elijah, who for the Jews there would be their kind of superhero, they're, they're one like Elijah is somebody that they've been waiting for, one like Moses. So it really puts Jesus in the same league as Elijah. And I think that's really, really important because Jesus is saying something about who he is. He's saying, I am one like Elijah. I am one that you've been waiting for. Well, what's really, really interesting to me is if you compare the two miracles... Actually, what I believe Jesus is saying is, I am one greater than Elijah. Because you notice in the Elijah story that it's miraculous, it's a resurrection. I don't want to kind of reduce the power of what happened there. But did you notice the process that Elijah went through? Stretched himself out three times and appealed to God. And it said that God heard his prayer and then the boy was raised to life. You see the process. Now, don't get me wrong, that's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible that that happened. But just notice the difference. Let's look at the Jesus miracle again. Let's actually look at what happens. Let's read it again. So, chapter 7, we'll go from verse 14. Then he went up and touched the bier, which is like an open coffin. They were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. I love this. Just imagine the scene for a moment. There are two crowds that meet here. I don't know if you noticed that Jesus has got his crowd as he's entering the town. And there's a crowd of people behind him. And there's also a crowd of people at the funeral because it's a very public funeral. And they're all kind of wailing and crying. Very noisy. And it, it reminds me of the storm to come that he's about to still. Where he's surrounded by two crowds meeting um, in the middle of you know, just the chaos of it all, and the fact that he just kind of enters the heart of that moment, and everyone, everything stops. It's such a dramatic moment, isn't it? Everything stops. But look at the difference. He just speaks. That's all he does. He just says, young man, I say 
to you, get up. And it happens. He just speaks. Do you see the difference? Here is one greater than Elijah. Here is one that has the power to command life, to just speak. All right? And I think the subtlety of that is lost slightly on the crowd because they say, oh, it's a great prophet. But they miss something very important that I, I guess that we would see, which is if one has the power to speak life, then that person is God. Agreed? It's what we believe, isn't it? Absolutely. That person is God. Now, what do I base that on? Well, I base that right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. And what happens there? God said, let there be light, and there's light. God commands life. That's what it means to be God, to be able to speak into the world and for something to be created. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. God commands life. And it's, it's an association not lost on John either, is it? The beginning of John's gospel in the beginning was the Word and the Word was made flesh. God was manifest in the Word and the power of the Word to create life. This is one greater than Elijah, isn't it? Greater than Elijah. And just for fun, I, I decided to look at all those miracles. You know, we talked about the progressive miracles through Luke. I did this for you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, <laughs> um, if you go back through those miracles, all those ones I was just talking about, the healing and the paralysis and the driving out of the spirits, and every single one is based on Jesus speaking. Have you noticed that? I'll tell you that now. So very quickly, you can chase this up later. Luke 4.35, rebuking spirits. Jesus said sternly, drives them out, speaking. Okay. Um, he cures the sick. It says he rebuked the fever. He speaks to the sickness, and it, and it disappears. Okay, um, when he heals the leper, he just says, be clean, and the leper is made clean, all right? Uh, when he heals the paralyzed man, he says, get up, take your mat, and go home, and that's what happens, okay? The centurion gets it. What does the centurion say? You just say the word, and this will happen. The centurion gets something, that's why Jesus is so impressed with the centurion's faith because he's actually slightly head of the drag curve of Jesus revealing who he really is and the centurion somehow, clearly through the Holy Spirit, sees something about Christ that's different and says, I know that if you just speak, this will happen. You don't even have to be there. That tells me the centurion has caught a glimpse of Christ's true identity and that's why Jesus is like, whoa, I've not seen faith like this. You're actually ahead of my revelation here. You're, you're ahead. You're, you're top of the class. Well done. You've seen something about me that I haven't even fully revealed yet. Because you say, you just speak, and it happens because the centurion says, I know you've got authority, but you just have to say the word. That this man has the very authority of God and can speak. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. He's revealing himself as one greater than Elijah. His authority is the very authority of God. What a fantastic revelation. <laughs> I love the irony of what people say here, because if we just look at the reaction again, they say more than they mean to say. So we look at verse 16. They were all filled with awe, and, I, and some translations have that as fear, by the way. That isn't just a kind of, whoa, that's impressive. It's a kind of that's shaken my very core of what I believe is possible in the world. 
Like, I doubt things now. <laughs> I'm a little bit afraid of you, Jesus, because this power is too awesome for me to cope with. They're filled with awe, and they praised God, quite rightly. Now, they don't quite have it yet. A great prophet has appeared among us. So they're saying, okay, there's one like Elijah here. That's not far enough, is it? We know that. But then they say the next thing, which I think is really interesting. They said, God has come to help his people. Now, what they actually mean is God's working. That's all they mean. God is working. This is a time of prophets. God is active again in Israel. That's fantastic. But I love the irony of actually they hit the nail on the head without really realizing it. God has come. He's here, manifest in front of us in the person of Jesus Christ. I love that. I love that. And friends, I, I just just started to think about, okay, what does this mean for us? Well, part of it is I, I believe that Jesus reveals himself to us in stages, progressively. He is awesome. He is bigger than we can ever fully understand. And that's okay. And he will reveal himself to us, dependent on our capacity, our faith, our preparedness to understand the full extent of him. And I love that about Christ. I love the fact that he doesn't force himself upon us, that he doesn't force the revelation. He reveals himself progressively for those that are ready to understand. And we see it later in the Gospels, don't we? Later, when he, when he does ask that question, who did the crowd say I am? Do you remember that it's Peter who says you are the Christ? He gets it. But there are many times in the Gospels as well when they don't get it, aren't there? When they don't see. And Jesus doesn't, lose patience so much with them for that because he understands that the enormity of who he is is a lot to take in for our human minds and our hearts. And I love the fact that Jesus reveals himself to us progressively. But what's the final thing really? So that's reading backwards. But if we read it forwards now, this miracle says something else about where we're going, doesn't it? It's not just that Jesus is greater than Elijah. It's not just that Jesus is God. The main message here is that Jesus has power over death itself. Jesus has power over death itself. And you'll know, of course, that this is one of a number of resurrection stories that are in the Gospels. It's one of four, actually. And this is the first one, and unique to Luke, as I said earlier. And actually, if you follow those through, like the miracles in Luke, they get progressively more challenging if, if there's a level of resurrection challenge. They get harder. What do I mean by that? Well, we, we have Jairus' daughter that comes a little bit later. And one of the differences there um, is well, partly because it's a child and partly um, Jairus actually asks for it and there's, there's, more, there's more pressure on that situation. But the one I really want to get to is we get Lazarus later, don't we? The raising of Lazarus. How does that happen? Jesus speaks. Come out, Lazarus. He just speaks. Yes? But the difference there is that Lazarus has been dead for four days. So that one's harder, isn't it? <laughs> That's a harder challenge. In fact, they're a little bit worried about that one because of the smell, you'll remember. Uh, they're a bit worried about that miracle. So that one is even, look, he's progressively re revealing his command over death, isn't he? You see that? Because this death is immediate. They would have buried him straight away. So this is an immediate death. And now later we've got Lazarus, Lazarus who's been dead for four days progressive reveal of his command over death. Where are we heading in this story, friends? You know, don't you? Well, what's the hardest resurrection? Your own. <laughs> Your own. That's where we're heading, isn't it? 
Do you see Jesus revealing where this is really heading? This is a resurrection. Yes, it's one like Elijah, but a bit better. Yes, but this is just the beginning of the story, everybody. We're heading to his own death and resurrection. And I I asked myself here, because no one asks him to raise this person. Did you notice that? No one asks him to do it. He just does it spontaneously, probably because no one believes yet that he has the capacity to do something like that. No one asks him. Why does he feel so compassionate towards this woman? Well, for me, I can't help see the parallels in his own situation. Do you remember at the end of the Gospel of John when he gives Mary, his mother, to John and says, take care of her, you're now her son? Do you remember that? I just can't help but feel there's something about the humanity of Christ here where he sees his own mother in this widow, sees his own future. He knows where he's heading. He knows that he too will be leaving his, his mother alone. And I just, there's something about this miracle, I think, that foreshadows what's to come. It, it, the echo is so powerful, his compassion, yes? It's a lovely story. That's in John 19, if you want to chase that later. The parallel with his own resurrection, I think, is strong. So we start to see this story both reading it backwards and reading it forwards and realizing how much it's saying to us about who Jesus really is. And it's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable. The wider story of God. The plan. What does this all mean for us? Well, helpfully... Paul explains it to us later, doesn't he? <laughs> and if we, if we go through to 1 Corinthians 15, which is page 1156 in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul teaches us what this means for Christians. What does it mean that Jesus has the victory over death? What does it mean that Christ has been raised? And he explains it so clearly Jesus himself says it, um, actually the Lazarus miracle in, in John 11, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life, is what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. And Paul takes that one further. And Paul says, 1522, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. All will be made alive. And later he goes on to say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Jesus progressively reveals the truth that he has victory over death. He has command over death, that death has lost its sting. And what that means for the Christian is that's true for us as well. You were talking um, earlier about it being a day of sadness and celebration. And I, that's what we believe, isn't it, as Christians? We have to. And actually, Paul in Corinthians says, if you don't believe this, then you haven't you're not really fully grasping the truth of Christianity. You're not really a Christ follower unless you believe this. And he's not kind of having a go at people. It's a hard thing to believe that death has been conquered, but it is very central to our faith and our hope. Something that Tom Wright talks about in his book, Surprised by Hope, that that we need to believe this is true, that death has been conquered. It's a difficult thing to believe, which is why Christ reveals it to us progressively to build our faith towards that point. I don't know where you are this morning in this, and I'm sure many of you this morning hold on to this truth every day. Where, oh death, is your victory? Where is your sting? Well, it's gone, isn't it? 
Christ has conquered death for you and for me. And what, what does that mean for us? What ought to be my response? Well, helpfully, Paul tells us that as well. He says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, that's us, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What could possibly move us if death itself has lost its sting? Yes? How triumphant, how fantastic that everything that we do in this life is towards a greater glory. That we're promised this resurrection. That one day Jesus will call to you and me just like he speaks to this young man in the, in the beer and just says, just get up and we will. We'll just get up and we'll be made new. <laughs> you know, how fantastic. <laughs> it's just going to take a word. You know that, don't you? Just a word. Just get up. Come on, stop messing about. Let's carry on. What a fantastic hope that we're all gifted. Three things. Because Christ is greater than Moses and all the prophets, because Christ is God and speaks life into the world with all of his authority, because death has been defeated, we, we can stand firm. Because nothing can shake us. Amen. Amen. Let's just pray. Father God, we just thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you conquered death. We thank you that you have all the authority in our lives and in this world and that you can just speak and things will be so. And we thank you that by your spirit, you give us that authority to command in your name. And we pray, Lord, that we will go out into this world with boldness, that we will stand firm, that we won't fear. Just thank you for this fantastic gospel. Just continue, Lord, to reveal yourself to us progressively. Show us the greater depths of who you are. Help us to receive that. Help us to believe that. Amen.